0: Father, we thank you for this time that we have together to look at this parable, the parable of the tenants. And I pray that as we look through this parable, uh, we would gain more wisdom and understanding in this, uh, that you would show us your truths and how to apply it to our lives. And we just uh, thank you and praise you for giving us this parable, giving us the ability, the capabilities to look at it. Uh, And again, just give us your truth now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you turn to Matthew 21, verse 33, a little bit of recap is in order. Again, we're looking at the final week of Jesus. We have the triumphal entry, then Jesus cleanses the temple. You have the fig tree, um, which shows that Israel is dying, that they are no longer bearing fruit, um, which leads perfectly into this parable that we're going to talk today, and then from the fig tree, there's the question on authority. They're wondering on which authority Jesus did these things. Uh, and Jesus um, asked the question of John the Baptist, is he from heaven or, or from earth or from man? And they can't answer the question, and so Jesus doesn't answer their question. And then we saw last week with the parable of the two sons that Jesus really showed them that their true problem was the fact they didn't believe even though they heard, right? And we get that mainly from verse 32. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, that is, from heaven, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him, and therefore they will go to the kingdom before you. And then again, and even after you saw it, you did not afterwards change your mind and believe. And so they had zero excuse for not believing in Jesus Christ. Not only did they have John, but they had Jesus himself. And even after they saw the things that he did, the miracles, the teaching, all the things, they still did not believe. And so that is the true part of the issue that is the problem of the Pharisees and Jesus kind of lays it out to them pretty clearly for them and we get into then the parable of the tenants and this outlines the consequences of that faithlessness and so we start out with the vineyard given it says here another parable there was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and dug a wine press in it, and built a tower, and leased it, to, leased it to tenants, and went into another country. Now again, here another parable. And so when you see that, that is an extension of what we have already been talking about. So Jesus is continuing on this discussion from the past all the way up into the authority of Jesus. Passage he says, there is a master of a house who planted a vineyard, and he put a fence around it. He dug a wine press and built a tower, then leased it. This is all the master's work. Uh, When you look at this, he does everything to this vineyard, uh, quite literally, and it outlines it perfectly for you. Uh, Again, he planted, he built a fence, he dug a wine press, and he builds a tower, and he even goes into leasing it. And this... Vineyard here is really the nation of Israel. If you turn real quickly to Isaiah 50, or Isaiah 5, verse 1. Isaiah 5, verse 1. We see um, kind of where Jesus may have gotten this idea, or not gotten his idea, but used this image um, because it would have been something that they would have related to. And so you'll see in a second, it says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. Beloved had a a vineyard on a a very fertile hill. He dug it, he cleared it of stones, and he planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for the, it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that, uh, that I, I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedges, and I, it shall be devoured. I will break down its walls and it shall be trampled down. I will make waste. It shall be pruned or hoed. The briars and the thorns shall grow up. And I will command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And so it's pretty clear in this passage what he is talking about. And you can see the similarities between really the parable and this passage here that He dug it, he cleared it, he planted it, he built a watchtower, and he built the wine vat. And so in all those things, Jesus kind of correlates, hey, look, (laughs) they would have kind of thought, oh, that's kind of similar to what Isaiah says. And so the connection is pretty clear between this vineyard here in Isaiah, which clearly states that it's Israel, and the vineyard back in our passage in Matthew, which is, again, going to clearly be seen as Israel. And this is something that they understood. If you remember when Kurt was reading, it says in verse 45 back in Matthew, it says, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And so they even understood this as he was talking, that they perceived probably in part, a huge part of that was thinking back to Isaiah and thinking about this passage and saying, is he really talking about us as the vineyard? Getting in our passage again, we see that, again, the master does all the work. He has great care in building his vineyard. Is something that we should be taking out of this. And this is easy to see when you think of all the wonderful things that God did for the children of Israel. Um, all, the way from, all the way from the beginning, from Abraham, um, all the way till that point in time. He had blessed them greatly. They had gone through a lot of times. A lot of that was because of their own disobedience. Um, But God was faithful and patient with them, and He provided for them in many ways. And so He had great care in building this vineyard, and yet they had no fruit. Again, like the vineyard in the account of Isaiah, and like the fig tree, they were empty. And so there's agreement to be made. And so he leases it out. And this is a normal thing to do in that culture. A lot of people would do this. They would build um, much like this guy does in the parable. And then they would lease it to someone. And that person would take care of it for whatever the agreement was. Whether it was like a portion of the fruit. Whether it was like a set amount of fruit. Or whether it was even just a payment to be made um, money wise. And so there is a lot of various different ways In this parable, it seems that there is a portion of fruit that was supposed to be collected that was the agreement to be made. Uh, We only know that because he calls for the collection to be made, and he sends his servants. And so um, they agree to this, all of the tenants. This would have been a good deal for them. All the work is done. They just have to produce the fruit now. And this is reminiscent, again, of what we looked at last week in Exodus 24. Remember, we will do, after Moses reads all of the commandments of the Lord, the word of the Lord, and all the people said, we will do and we will be obedient. And so there was an agreement that was made. And after that agreement, he goes into a far-off country. And he leaves the responsibility to the tenants to produce the fruit and it's kind of interesting because much like Israel, we are called to produce fruit. We need to produce fruit for God. And I was thinking about this morning. It's not just fruit. We need to produce fruit for God, right? The tenants had to produce fruit for the master. And so do we. And we can often go through life not producing fruit for God. Um, there's a big difference between having love In a worldly sense, and having a love that points to God, that is part of the fruit of the Spirit. Um, As you have patience, it's not a selfish patience, just waiting for all the things that you want in this world. It's a patience that's centered around God and his word. And so as we think about this, we need to think about how we ourselves are bearing fruit. Are we just bearing fruit um, that is in a worldly sense? uh, Or are we bearing the fruit of the Spirit? And so there was the master's work, the agreement, was, the agreement was made, and there was a great privilege. The vineyard, the kingdom, was entrusted to them. And this is something we need to remember as well. It is a great responsibility we have, but it is a great privilege we have to be heirs to the kingdom of God. Uh, we should really always think back to the cross. We do it at least once a month for communion. Um, That's why we do it. It shouldn't be just something we do because we always do communion on the second week of the month. We should do it in remembrance of what he did and have a true appreciation, um, a calling to that great sacrifice that he had for us. And one of the ways we can think about just how much we appreciate it is would you trade it for anything? If someone said, hey, you could be the president right now. You just have to trade it for your salvation in Jesus Christ. What would you say? Hopefully no, right? What if someone said, oh, I'll give you a million bucks for it? Hopefully you'd say no. What if someone said, oh, I'll give you a billion dollars for it? Hopefully your answer is still no, right? Because you truly value that sacrifice on the cross when you really think about it. And you wouldn't trade it for anything because you know how valuable that sacrifice is. And so as we go around, we need to have, we need to think about it as a great privilege. We need to remember Um, Just how great of a sacrifice we have it just how much grace and mercy we have because of Christ and appreciate and praise him for that sacrifice. And so we want to trade it for anything. So it's a great privilege. And so the the first point is we see the vineyard given. The second one is the messengers despised. We continue on the parable says when the season for the fruit drew near, he sent his servants To the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. It's interesting when you look at the different accounts here. When you go to a Mark uh, and Luke, I actually. Um, almost prefer those ones, or I like the way they're written a little more than this one, but we're continuing on in our parables here, but Mark tells us that he sends one servant, and they beat him, and then he sends another servant, and they stone him, and then he sends another servant, and they kill him, and so he sends them one after another, that the one comes, and he gets back to him, then he sends another, and they come back to him, so it's a little more of a prolonged thing. Matthew just combines it all, and he says he sends these guys, and this happens and what we see is the right season for fruit there is a point in time in which they were supposed to collect fruit and I think when you're looking at what the fruit is here in this passage um, mainly it is going to be the fruit of repentance um, because he's talking to the Pharisees the religious leaders and John the Baptist we looked at this in Matthew 3, 8, he really points out to it. He just tells them, look, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That was what John <laughs> looks at them, and he says, that's what you need to do. And so I think mainly Jesus has in mind the fruits of repentance here. But there's also the fruit of righteousness. Uh, Coloss- and That's Philippians 1, 11. Colossians 1, 10 tells us that we are supposed to bear fruit in every good work. And then, of course, you have the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And so kind of all these things, but I think the hub of this is the fruit of repentance because without that repentance, the rest of the fruit doesn't matter because you don't even care about Christ to begin with. They can't really bear any fruit if they don't have the fruit of repentance. And so he sends his fruit or his servants to get his fruit. And these fruit is held by the tenants They don't want to let it go. And the master deserves to have this fruit. It is his fruit. And so I want to take a look at the abusing of the servants. Now, throughout history, we can clearly see what Jesus would be referring to when you look at the abusing of his servants. These servants are, in many ways, the prophets, uh, mainly the prophets And so go to Jeremiah real quick. Um, Jeremiah 37, 15. Many times we look at the prophets, and hopefully you don't get the idea that they had a super easy life, because their life was nothing but um, easy. And as we see throughout history... Um, The very people in which they were called to go and speak to often were the very people who wanted to stone them, who wanted to hurt them, who wanted to kill them, um, particularly the people of Israel. Jeremiah 37.15, we read that uh, the officials were enraged at Jeremiah, and they beat him, and they imprisoned him in the house of Jonathan the secretary for it. Uh, for it had been made a a prison. And then you continue on in 38. 6. It says, So they took Jeremiah and they cast him into the cisterns of Malachiah, (laughs) the uh, the king's son, which was in the court of the guard, letting Jeremiah down by the ropes. And there was no water in the cistern, but only mud, and Jeremiah sank in the mud. Not a very good time for Jeremiah for preaching the word of God. Let's continue on in looking in Jeremiah. Uh, If you turn to uh, chapter 26, verse 21. Jeremiah 26, verse 21. It says, And when the king Jehoiakim, with all of his warriors and all the officials, heard his words, the king sought to put him to death. But when Uriah heard of it, he was afraid and fled and escaped to Egypt. Then the king of Jehoiakim sent to Egypt certain men, Elnatha and the son of um, Akbar and others with him. And they took Uriah from Egypt and brought him to the king Jehoiakim, who struck him down with the sword and dumped his dead body into the burial place of the common people. Um, not very good. Let's go again to Second um, Chronicles. I only have two more passages for you. Second Chronicles 20. It says, Then the Spirit of God clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest. And he stood above the people and he said, Thus says God, why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. But they conspired against him and... By command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Here you have a prophet who is speaking the words of the Lord, and they stone him in the house of the Lord. Thus, Joash the king did not remember the kindness that Jehoiada, Zechariah's father, had shown him, but killed his son. And when he was dying, he said, May the Lord see and avenge. And... So hopefully you're getting a pretty good picture. I could like keep going forever on this. Isaiah was said to have been sawed in half by a wooden saw. Uh, many different people throughout history of Israel, different prophets, died in pretty terrible ways um, because they spoke the word of the Lord and the people did not like it. I, the last one I want to take you to is Second Chronicles 36. All the way in the end, verse 15. It says, The Lord God of their fathers sent persistently to them by the messengers, by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his people, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. That is sadly the story of Israel. God is patient with them. He has compassion on them. He sends his messengers to share his word. And they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising their words, scoffing at his prophets. Uh, That is their history in a nutshell. That's why when you get to the parable, in light of all of that, you see, it says he took his servants, he beat one, he killed another, and he stoned another. Uh, You can see it through history. And again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. And so he was gracious, he was patient, he was compassionate, and he sent his servants to them. And you might look at this and say, like the religious leaders of the day, and say, well, that was our ancestors. If we were them, this is what they would say, that we would have done it differently. We wouldn't have killed them. And Jesus, just in verse uh, chapter 23, points to this. If you go to chapter 3, verse 29, when he's doing all his woes, he says, Woe to the scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous ones, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with the shedding of the blood of the prophets. That's literally what they were saying. We wouldn't have done that. We wouldn't have killed Zachariah like that. We wouldn't have killed Uriah like that. We would have done it differently. Thus the witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. Just continue on and going and doing that. You serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape the sentence to hell? So Jesus was pretty severe with them. He says, "Therefore, I send prophets and wise men and scribes; some of whom you will kill, crucify, some you will flog in your synagogues, persecute, and from town to town, so that you may come all the righteous bloodshed on the earth from the blood of the righteous. Abel to the blood of Zachariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation." He's like, you're not only guilty of that, but you are going to do these things to other people as well. And because of that, you're, you are guilty of all of it. And so he hits right at the heart again of the Pharisees and the scribes. They were all guilty of this. And, As bad as it is to kill all of the servants, he continues on in the parable and gets to the worst thing of all. He says, finally, in verse 37, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And so this is the worst thing of all. Not only is he going to kill the prophets, the servants... But he's going to kill, he's going to send his very son in thinking they will respect him. And this respect is, the Greek word is also used in Hebrews of the respect of a son to a father. It's kind of to have reverence for, to have regard for. Uh, the idea is he, they're going to respect him because of who he is. And obviously, this almost needs no explanation. We can all get a pretty clear idea that they're talking about Jesus. This is actually a prophecy of what is to come. There he's going to send his son and he you would think that their long-awaited Messiah, the Son of God, who proves himself to be that, would be respected, would be admonished, would be loved, would be praised. But when... The tenants, that is, the religious leaders, saw the son. They said, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and have his inheritance. Again, it harkens back to what we learned about the parable of two sons. They knew, even when they saw it, they did not turn and believe. Um, they weren't just like ignorant of the fact that Jesus was who he was, they knew who he was, they were greedy. And so you have the slaughtering of the son. Instead of giving the fruit to the son, they wanted to kill him and have his inheritance. And at this point, a lot of critics of the parables of the Bible in general would say this is an implausible scenario. I mean, really think about it. Who, what master would keep sending his servants in such a way that he would... Send one, and he gets beaten. He sends another, he gets stoned. Another one, he gets killed. And he keeps sending all of these servants, and they keep getting beaten, stoned, and killed. And then he decides to send his son. And when you read in the different accounts in Mark and Luke, it has a much more um, personal feeling to it. And Luke, it kind of, I believe, he says uh, a little more, of, I will send my son, my only son. Surely they will respect my son. And so, there's this idea that this is precious. Obviously, the servants were precious to him, but this is his son. And so, people say it's unlikely that he would send so many servants. Um, It's kind of an implausible scenario. And that's kind of the point. Um, Jesus is being very dramatic with this illustration. He's showing them just how crazy it is that he is sending all of these servants that he has so much compassion, that he has so much patience for these people, he even sends his own son, and yet when they see the son, they decide to kill him as well. It's insane, it's crazy, but it's a perfect picture of God's patience, and a perfect picture of God's love as well. And so that is the vineyard given, the messengers despised, but also the fruitlessness exposed. And so in the parable it says, And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Um, again, this is a, also a prophecy of what is to come. That is what is going to happen. And taking him out of the, uh, the vineyard is uh, taking him right outside the city. And they kill him, Jesus. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will, the, what will he do to these tenants? And so we have the reaction to the parable, and I don't know what these people are thinking. I'm not sure why they decide to answer Jesus' questions anymore after the parable of the two sons when he strongly rebukes them. But they decide that it's a good idea to answer the question, and they said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give them the fruits of their seasons. A very sad response for them to be answering that question in such a way because Jesus pretty much points to them and is saying, look, it's just that this would happen. I even tell you a parable of exactly outlining the history of what will be and you even say that the just thing to do would be to put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give the fruit. That is the right thing to do. And so they condemn themselves with their own answer. And actually their answer in the Greek has a little bit of a play on words. It's, he will miserably destroy those miserable men, uh, has that idea. So they sentence themselves, their own demise, as even Jesus points out in chapter 23, right? In verse 33, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how can you escape being sentenced to hell? They themselves are the ones who said... That that is the just thing to do. Put those wretches to a miserable death. It is the just penalty. And so. It moves on from here. Into an interesting. It almost seems like it cuts off. From the parable. And changes to a different subject. But this is still a continuation of thought. Because Jesus says to them. Have you never read the scriptures? Obviously that was a. (laughs) sarcastic little tone there to the people who that was quite literally their job in life to read the scriptures. And so he says, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing fruits, and the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Ultimately, they rejected the cornerstone. Now, it's very interesting. I want you to turn to Psalms 118, because that is where the verse comes from. And it's important to look at this for a few reasons. It says, starting in verse 19, 118, verse 19, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them. And give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Now, Psalm 118 was one of the psalms that they would recite during festivals and since they had just had a festival this would have been fresh in their minds and we know it would have been fresh in their minds as well because if you continue it says save us we pray O lord O lord we pray give us success blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord now that should ring a little bit of a bell because that is what they sing at the triumphal entry they say hosanna to the son of david blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord Hosanna in the highest. And so just a few days ago, they were singing this, and they were singing this part to Jesus. And now Jesus takes what's fresh in their mind, and he says, look, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And so he's pointing to them another passage, or another part of that, that they were singing during that time, and revealing to them the meaning of it. Jesus is that cornerstone that was rejected. And the cornerstone is the essential part of the building. It is something that had to be perfect, it had to be right. Once that was in alignment, then the rest of the building would have been in alignment as well. If you did not have a good cornerstone, then the rest of your building would be off alignment, and then obviously it would be a shaky building and wouldn't be super trustworthy. There's even stories of when they were building the temple, there was a lot of rejected cornerstones. And one of the stones, they say, was rejected. And then later on, it was brought back. And someone said, this is the cornerstone for the temple. And they used it. And so, I'm not sure if that's true or not. But it's one of those accounts. Um, and so, Jesus here is that cornerstone. He is the ultimate cornerstone. Without that, uh, everything in life is off alignment. Uh, you need him as that. Uh, the rest of your life will be off. Uh, it's essential, um, as we see, to the Christian life. And the apostles, Peter, Paul, always point to the cornerstone. We talk about Jesus being the cornerstone a lot. Actually, in Acts 4. Um, Peter, when he's speaking to the council, he points to this. He says in chapter 4, verse 10, it says, Let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And so he's referring to this. He's helping them understand, look, Jesus is the rejected cornerstone that you rejected, but has now become the cornerstone, the salvation to all. And when you look at this, really, Jesus is one of two things. When you think of him as a stone, he is either the stone that crushes and pulverizes or he is the cornerstone, the one that your life is aligned by, that is stabilized by, the very foundation of your life. And we can easily see that, you don't have to turn there necessarily, but Romans 9, 32, Paul outlines this for us. He says, Why? let me back up to verse thirty. It says, "What shall we say then that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but by works they have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, behold, I am laying a laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense." And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And that is a quote from Isaiah in Romans. But Paul basically points out because of based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. And so Jesus here is either the stumbling stone to them, the rock of offense for them, or he is the very cornerstone for them. Um, It's one or the other. And so we see finally the consequences of it. He says, I tell you the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And I tell you is what he says. And it kind of reminds you a little bit of David and our. David and Nathan uh, when David gets angry about this and he says who is this and this person deserves, deserves all this and Nathan just tells him you are the man <laughs> it's you that's kind of what they do here the Pharisees are going to put those wretches to miserable death and let out those other tenants and give them to the fruits of their season and Jesus tells them I tell you it's you <laughs> you are that person. So first of all, they'll be taken away from the kingdom. Again, we see this. We started out. It's the fruit that was lacking in the fig tree. And they kind of correlate very well as like almost a beginning and an ending to this idea. The fruit tree is empty. There's a little bit of discussion, and in the end, there's this vineyard that is lacking fruit. And it's not so much that it's lacking fruit, it's that they didn't want to give the fruit to the master. They were defective on the inside, and I found this good illustration. It says, a visitor to a sculptor studio commented, I saw some blocks of marble lying off in the corner. Out of one hand emerged, out of another a head with a face unfinished. Others had unfinished work. Why the abandoned pieces? The artist answered, all those pieces showed great promise on the outside, on the surface, but as I chiseled deeper, flaws and defects in the marble that were not visible on the surface showed up. They had to be abandoned. and so the people of Israel were much like that marble stone on the outside. they looked great. they had all um, the looks, um, but although they had all the looks of righteousness, they were in of themselves unrepentant, unrighteous, selfish. Seeking their own good, not bearing fruit, so they'll be taken away from the kingdom, and they'll be given to another, is what it says. And now that is the church, God's people. Uh, in First Peter, uh, he outlines this for us perfectly in First Peter two nine, and I actually want you to turn there in your Bible.